You're listening to For the Record, a Registrar podcast. I'm Becky Klein-Collins, Vice President for Impact at Kale, the Council for Adult and Experiential Learning. And this is Prior Learning Assessment in Higher Education. Hi, hello. Welcome to For the Record, a Registrar podcast sponsored by ACRO. I'm your host, Doug McKenna, and today is a great day to listen to the podcast because we are talking with Becky Klein-Collins from the Council on Adult and Experiential Learning about prior learning assessment and competency-based education. Becky, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Before we jump in and talk about prior learning assessment, could you introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background, and then maybe a quick overview of Kale? Sure. Um, Well, my name is Becky Klein-Collins, and I'm the Vice President for Impact at Kale, which is the Council for Adults and Experiential Learning. Um, I have a long history at Kale, working on various issues related to workforce development and post-secondary learning for adult students um, with respect to policy and research and also advocacy. And and Kale, just for your listeners who are not familiar with my organization, Kale is a national nonprofit organization that was founded in 1974. And it's an organization that's focused on linking learning and work for the uh, adult student and we are an affiliate organization of the Strata Education Network. Fantastic. I know that a bunch of registrars are familiar with Strata, and so perhaps they are also familiar with Kale, but hopefully they will be more familiar with your work after listening to this episode. So thank you for being here. And today we're talking about prior learning assessment and then to maybe a lesser degree, competency-based education. And before we go too far, let's talk about what those two things mean. And so maybe we can just baseline some working definitions of both prior learning assessment and competency-based education. Sure. Well, first of all, I love that we are talking about both prior learning assessment or PLA, as I call it, and competency-based education or CBE in the same conversation. I love that they're part of this uh, together. They're very different concepts. PLA is a term for assessments of learning that are used to evaluate the knowledge and skills of a student who has developed those knowledge and skills outside of the college classroom. So if the student's knowledge is comparable to college level learning, then the student is awarded college credit. So basically it's earning college credit for what you already know. CBE, uh, competency-based education, on the other hand, is really referring to a more comprehensive curricular approach to learning and post-secondary credentials. So for the official definition of CBE, really the best place to go is the CBE network, which is also known as CBEN, C-B-E-N. I'm going to read you a part of their definition, which is that CBE is, and I'll quote here, intentional, it's an intentional and transparent approach to curricular design with an academic model in which the time it takes to demonstrate competencies can vary and the expectations about learning are held constant. So what does that mean in practice? Um, Excellent question. How it it generally (laughs) works is that the programs 
require a set of clearly defined competencies. And then all learning activities in that program are designed so that students are developing these competencies. And then the student is required to demonstrate mastery of these competencies through multiple methods of assessment. Now, what PLA and CBE share is something really important to me, which is that they both firmly adhere to the idea that colleges and universities should be more focused on recognizing and valuing learning itself. And regardless of where that learning takes place or how it is acquired. I love that. Can you tell us a little bit more about how a student might engage with either PLA or CBE? Sure. I think what could be helpful here is to tell the story of a real student that um, my research team talked to last year. So I'll call him Alan, and he's a 51-year-old man from Ohio. After high school, he went right to college and, be and began working part-time as a laborer in a chemical plant to earn money. He gradually started working more and more hours at the plant and then stopped going to school entirely. Now, that's a common story we hear from a lot of returning adult students. That that's how they ended up not going to college in the first place or not finishing what they started. But then over the next few years, um, Alan worked his way up to become a manager at the plant. And then in 2018, his plant closed. He found when he was in the labor market, that he couldn't get hired on as a manager anywhere else if he didn't have some kind of post-secondary degree. So he went back to school. Now, Alan is somebody with a lot of knowledge and skills already under his belt. It's, he's got technical knowledge about things like hazardous materials management and forklift operations, but he also has business management and leadership skills. So the question is, do the skills and knowledge that he's acquired in his work experience, do they matter in higher education? Should they count towards a college degree or should he still have to take those courses anyway? Now, prior learning assessment is one way that someone like Alan could have his learning count towards a college degree or other post-secondary credential. So I should have said earlier in our conversation that I'm calling it prior learning assessment. This podcast is calling it prior learning assessment, but it also might be known to registrars as something else. It could be known within your institution as credit for prior learning, could be known as recognition of learning. Sometimes it's only known as something like credit by exam, um, but it's essentially the same thing. It's talking about the same kind of process of recognizing the learning that a student brings with them from other parts of their lives. And that learning can come from work experience like Alan's, come from military training or internships or volunteer work, even self-study. There's so much uh, online learning that's available for free that students engage with on their own. So there's a lot of different ways that students are bringing learning with them to their college experiences. So, and then with PLA based on, you know, whether the college can evaluate that learning and if the college determines that the student has learning that is comparable to what is required by courses or degrees, that student can then be awarded college credit for that learning. How that happens, there's a lot of different kinds of assessments that are used in PLA. <laughs> you, um, you, you read my mind. I was yeah, right there. Like, uh, it can happen all sorts of different ways. So, the, um, and you know, it depends on 
uh, what kind of learning the student is bringing. It depends on what methods that is offered by the institution. But one of the most common methods of PLA is standardized exams like the CLEP test. Another is challenge exams, which is essentially like a faculty developed exam for a specific course or subject. Another method of PLA is portfolio assessment, which is when the student puts together documentation of their learning, usually with some sort of narrative report that maps that learning to course learning outcomes for the course that they're trying to get credit for. And then finally, there are methods for evaluating more formal learning experiences like apprenticeships or training for licenses or corporate training and then military training. So right. back to Alan. So our friend Alan here who um, was at the chemical plant, um, in real life, he ended up pursuing a degree in transportation management and he enrolled at a college that offered PLA. Now this college evaluated some of his formal corporate training, I think for like has the hazmat um, experience that he had. And he got a credit for that learning that he could apply to his degree. So that was really good. But the college could have gone a lot further, could have invited Alan to submit a portfolio that outlined his knowledge and skills in things like project management, supply chain management, a whole bunch of other things that were required by the degree he was pursuing, but he already had. And so he wouldn't have had to, to take those courses in those subjects that he had already mastered. But in any case, he did earn some PLA credit, which is good. And earning that PLA credit did help him save some time because he didn't have to take courses in some of the credits that he needed to graduate. And also because PLA is typically offered for relatively low fees and sometimes uh, it's offered free of charge by some institutions, someone like Alan can save a lot in tuition or student loan debt. So that's PLA and the experience that someone like Alan would have with PLA. And now let's turn to CBE because that's a very different kind of scenario. Sure. So you'll remember that CBE is not just an assessment and it's not just awarding credit for um, someone's learning, but it's an entire curricular approach. It's a, for like a degree program. And it's focused on what students know and can do. So if an institution is developing a CBE program or when it's done so, it, it really starts with the end in mind. What do our students need to know and be able to do in order to earn this degree or other post-secondary credential? And so this, you know, what they know and can do, what that's really talking about are competencies. Now, in higher ed, I think a lot of people are familiar with the concept of learning outcomes um, being attached to different courses. And, uh, right, and increasingly used in ways that maybe they weren't designed for. Right. right. Well, competencies are, I think, seen as much more, it's a different concept than learning outcomes because competencies are supposed to be uh, clearly defined and they're measurable. And it's all about what somebody knows and can do. So it's definitely something that, that an institution would have a very clear view of. So a learning outcome, I think, can sometimes be a little mushier, to use the technical term. <laughs> that is the technical term for it, yes. <laughs> so anyway, a CBE program would define the skills and competencies very clearly so that they can be measured and assessed. And also, by the way, these competencies that are defined with this program, they're usually very closely tied to what the labor market is demanding, what employers say they are needing from somebody who has that degree. Right. Right. 
So then the regular stuff happens. The program provides the intentional learning activities and assesses the students every step of the way. So how does a student like Alan then engage with a CBE program? So let's say Alan finds a business management degree that's offered in a competency-based format. What he would find is that many of the CBE programs out there right now have been designed to be highly flexible. Their learning modules are typically offered online, usually with very flexible start dates, start times, and with options for students to move through the learning activities at their own pace. So a student like Alan could enroll in that kind of CDE program, and he would be able to advance pretty quickly to get to the instructional modules that he is lacking or that he most needs in, in order to you know, demonstrate the competencies for that degree. So he's already bringing with him all of the knowledge and skills from his work history at the chemical plant. And that really is his starting point. The program by design meets him where he is. So he could very easily move very quickly through the modules that cover topics he knows well, being assessed at each step of the program. So the program verifies that he does in fact have those skills and competencies. But when he gets to topics that aren't as familiar to him, he can take more time to engage with those learning activities in a different way. So at the end of the program, he's demonstrated all the competencies that are required for the degree, and he can get there more quickly because he had a lot of prior learning from his work experience. I should note, though, that, you know, I'm talking about this example of Alan, who brings a lot of work history, learning from his work experience, um, and he can benefit in a very specific way from the CBE model because he has that experience to build on. But CBE programs are not only designed for people like Alan. They're also good for students with no prior learning to build on. The self-paced format is a really good fit for a lot of working learners. And the focus on competencies that have been identified as valuable for employers and the workforce, that approach is designed to prepare any student well for the workplace. So it's a, it can be universally good for any student, whether they're a returning adult student or whether they're um, a student who's brand new to higher education. All of that makes a remarkable amount of sense to me. Maybe we'll come back to why there aren't more programs like this in higher ed in the United States. For now, let's dig in a little bit deeper and talk about sort of how both prior learning assessment and competency-based education, PLA and CBE, came to be. Like, how did this start? Yeah, that's a good question. And they didn't just arrive out of nowhere, right? So right. It seems like <laughs> that there's a, a history here that I think might be interesting. So yeah, Absolutely. So both PLA and CBE um, uh, might be a surprise to some people. They've been around for decades, at least in, uh, you know, since the 1970s. So we're talking almost 50 years here in, you know, in one form or another. But back then in the 70s and I think up into the early 80s, FIPSI, which is the Fund for the Improvement of Post-Secondary Education, it's part of the U.S. Department of Education. FIPSI uh, was responding to the growing number of adults enrolling in college by providing some significant funding for various projects designed to experiment with different ways to meet those students' needs. 
So prior learning assessment and competency-based learning were both in the mix for those kinds of projects that were sort of the hot topic of that day in, nice. um, in the Pipsy <laughs> world. Now, competency-based learning back then, you know, was not high tech or online, of course, but the concept of focusing on specific competencies for a degree and then recognizing knowledge and competencies that students brought with them to a college or university, those were definitely part of those approaches. And, you know, back then, PLE and CBE were also seen partly as a way to advance social justice by creating college opportunities for non-traditional student populations that had largely been ignored up to that point within higher education. Interesting. Yeah, there was a definitely a kind of movement around acknowledging that learning can take place in all sorts of different contexts and experiences, and that students have agency in their own learning. And what I mean by that is that you know, students engage with learning and they are co-creators of that learning. And it, that's different because it, it's not the view that learning is being imparted to them or bestowed upon them by academia. Yeah, that is a very progressive view for the 70s and 80s. We're, we're starting to hear more of that today, but that has not been a common approach, I believe, or a commonly held belief. Right. So, so essentially, PLA and CBE were before their time. They were harbingers of things to come, for sure. Essentially, both of them got kind of a reboot in the 2000s as more leaders within higher education and government officials even started to recognize how critical it is for our economy that we need, you know, we need to increase credential attainment, particularly among our workforce um, or working adult population. And, you know, for those who were advocating for competency based approaches, This is when there was also a growing recognition that higher ed needed to be a lot more responsive to what employers were telling us that they needed from our graduates in terms of skills and competencies. So to some extent, CBE was a response to that kind of message that we were hearing from employers. CBE is also very much a product of this moment because self-paced online CBE models that we see today those obviously benefited from the more sophisticated online learning technologies that only more recently have become available. Exactly. So this is, you know, a method meeting the moment, which is nice. One of the things, too, that I wanted to ask is how common are PLA and CBE today? Who's using them? How are they being employed across higher ed? And do we have any data on sort of adoption rates or usage rates? This might be interesting too. Yeah, well, somewhat. So PLA, I would say, is probably a bit more common than CBE, simply because it's a bit easier to offer. You know, with CBE, an institution would need to develop a brand new curricular approach that sometimes can be a challenge to establish within a credit-based environment. And, you know, CBE requires kind of rethinking and reorganizing of things like technologies and faculty and finances and business systems. So it's a a bit of a heavier lift. But now how common is PLA exactly? Well, actually, there was a recent report that was published by ACRO in partnership with WICHE, which is the Western Interstate Commission for Higher Education. And this was a survey of registrars last year. 
And it found that eight out of 10 institutions say that they offer one or more PLA options to students. And of those, then one third of those have increased their PLA offerings in the last three years. So that's really good. Yes. Um, but we know at Kale, because we uh, have spent years working with institutions on things like PLA, that PLA is often relegated to part of the institution that's focused on returning adult students rather than offer, offered to students uh, institution-wide or across all degree programs. The exception might be for a couple of PLA methods, more common PLA methods like CLEP tests or uh, the awarding of credit for military training using the um, ACE credit recommendations process. I would argue, by the way, and this is sort of kind of an aside, that you know the accepting of CLEP test credit really should be much more widely practiced and more extensively practiced within institutions because CLEP tests really are no different in concept to something like advanced placement test credit, which institutions seem to more routinely accept and recognize and value. Yeah. You know, we also know that colleges and universities often restrict PLA in other ways. So they may limit how many credits, PLA credits can count towards a degree, or they may limit PLA credits to only counting for students' elective credits in their major. And even when PLA is offered in an institution, we know that it is not often well publicized or promoted internally to students. And so as a result, PLA usage by students can be pretty low. We just did a, a research project with Wichi as well, in which we found that only one in 10 of the adult learners in our sample had earned PLA credit of any kind. And those were students who were enrolled at institutions that did provide multiple PLA methods. Now on CBE, there is a lot of research going on to understand the extent to which CBE programs are being developed, implemented across the country, and what the experiences with those programs are in terms of student outcomes. So a lot of that is still um, data that we're hoping to see uh, come out in the coming months and years. Sort of in um, the works. Yeah, so the folks at the American Institutes of Research um, have been um, really good at leading some of that effort nationally. And in their most recent institutional survey, um, I think they had six, 600 institutions respond to that survey, and half of the responding institutions said that they were in the process of adopting CBE. So that's at least 300 institutions that we know are out there, out there working on this. Like I said, it's not as extensively offered throughout higher education, but um, we are expecting that interest will only grow over time. Yeah, and we'll get to trends and things and where you see sort of the future of PLA and CBE going momentarily. I had one question. When you raised the AP credits and drew the comparison between CLEP and AP, it made me think of this, not necessarily related to either CLEP or AP, but are there accreditation issues or concerns by institutions as one of the reasons that PLA is not encouraged or publicized better? And if it's not accreditation, what are some of the, what's the hesitancy of an institution to be more public about their PLA capabilities or offerings? And certainly I would expect institutions would see CBE 
as a selling point, especially with the demographic shifts that are going on in America right now? Sure. Well, in terms of PLA, the regional accrediting agencies have across the board supported the idea of PLA, and they all have some some sort of mention of PLA in their guidelines, in particular about encouraging institutions to develop clear policies on prior learning assessment, what those policies could potentially look like, and that they need to make sure to publicize those policies for students. Um, These are all guidelines, though. They're not directives in any way. And and the same sort of happens at the system level, you know, within, you know, public systems of higher education, that often you'll get encouragement to develop policies and practices, um, but very rarely will you uh, get directives from uh, uh, the regional accrediting bodies or from a system office about mandating PLA. But what you sometimes see in, well, you will see in at some of the regional accreditors is limitations on PLA. And so there are certain parts of the country where you would not be able to offer PLA for more than 25% of a degree program. Others are restricted to, you know, at least PLA can't count towards the residency requirements. Um, So that sort of thing is um, in part, um, it it in part varies from regional, uh, region to region because of what the accrediting bodies are saying. Um, Got it. And and those are similar to some of the limitations placed on transfer credit as well. Exactly, exactly. Now, internally within an institution, there are other barriers that an institution might face when if they're interested in really expanding their PLA offerings. One is you might hear uh, voices of concern about the quality and um, academic integrity and concern that, oh, are we giving away credit? That is something that we hear quite a bit. Um, It usually goes away when we start talking about quality standards for assessing learning and what that means. Kale has developed and has had in practice for many decades now, 10 standards for assessing learning. And that sort of outlines a number of steps that institutions can take to really establish some quality when it comes to the process of evaluating learning for college credit. And one of those standards that I like to mention is that uh, credit is only awarded for learning and not for experience. So I think a lot of people are under the misperception about PLA that the way it works is that a student brings in their resume and somebody looks at their resume and says, oh, you've worked as an accountant for 10 years, so we're going to give you you know, 10 credits towards the accounting degree. And it's that easy. It's just giving credit for somebody's work experience. It doesn't work like that when PLA is done according to quality standards and um, around assessment of learning, because it's the learning that has to be assessed and mapped to specific courses for which a student is getting credit or applying for credit. Um, and when you explain that difference, that us- that often invites a different kind of conversation about PLA. Um, sure. And one, uh, one would hope that your accountant could demonstrate appropriate accountancy learning. That's right. That's <laughs> After right. 10 years on the job. But you would hope so, yeah. <laughs> so another, another barrier that you might find internally as you're trying to promote 
prior learning assessment is that there's some still very outmoded beliefs uh, about just the value of learning that takes place outside of the classroom. And I think we talked about this earlier in our conversation. But there, you know, there are faculty members who believe that if I didn't teach it, it doesn't have value. Or if it wasn't taught in the classroom by a member of faculty at this institution, it doesn't have value. So, you know, we have this challenge, too, with transfer credits, the same kind of yep. issue. But it's it's that sort of um, that creates a, a little bit of an obstacle for some people. And then finally, there are concerns about losing tuition dollars. Um, you know, if we're offering prior learning assessment for relatively low fee or offering it for free in some cases, we're losing out on the tuition we would otherwise get from the student taking that class. What we found, though, is the reverse is true, that we found in our research that we just published last year that students who take PLA are more likely to persist and complete their degrees. And because of that, they actually end up taking more courses, about 17 more credits on average compared to students without PLA credit. That makes sense too, because that's a student who would not have been a student if they, you know, they may not have come back to pursue their degree if that wasn't an entry point for them. And so having PLA as a way to, yes, advance them on their path to degree, it's still a benefit to the institution to have that student enrolled and taking classes beyond the PLA that they might be awarded. So that makes sense. We've talked a lot and I appreciate this is fascinating to me and I'm so happy that we're having this conversation. So thank you for making some time today to chat through. I'm interested in what you think the future holds for PLA and then also more specifically about how institutions might adopt PLA or competency-based education, CBE, and then how those things might fit into what you see as the future of higher education. And I have one follow-up question with that as well, or wrapped into this. This is a registrar-focused podcast. And so I'm interested, too, in, in digging into maybe like the registrar's role in how institutions implement PLA and then what the registrar's role is in advocating for PLA processing students using PLA, et cetera. So that's a lot. That's a good Um, question. Yeah, no, I like that one. Well, uh, to your first, the first part of your question, which is, you know, what does the future hold for PLA and CDE? I really think that both PLA and CDE are going to be really critical in the years ahead. You know, we're in the middle of a terrible economic crisis where a lot of people have lost jobs. And Mostly it's folks without post-secondary credentials um, who have been affected by this downturn. And when you think about what it's going to take for the economy to recover and for people to improve their long-term employability, it's you know getting people to complete post-secondary credentials, that's going to be key. And you know, PLA and CBE can both be really helpful for people who are struggling in this labor market, but who already have a lot of skills and knowledge so that they can build on what they already know as they pursue the kind of credentials that they're going to need for changing careers or for career advancement. Now, there are other reasons why 
colleges and universities may be paying a lot more attention to PLA and CBE in the coming months. I've mentioned the research that we've done recently on PLA. And the one thing I've kind of buried the lead here is that this research has provided strong evidence that students who earn PLA credits are more likely to complete their degrees. Uh, What we found looking at data from more than 230,000 adult learners across 72 institutions, we found that the adult students with PLA credits were 17% more likely to complete degrees compared to adult students without PLA credits, and that was kind of across the board, all sorts of different student populations, subgroups, institutional environments, and so on. And so the data point that I mentioned early that PLA students also took more courses from the institutions than did the non-PLA students. So really, colleges are benefiting from PLA as well. Kale has a lot of member institutions that you know are part of our Kale community and that we work with, and they have a high interest in PLA and doing more with it. And we're seeing that interest grow a lot nationally as well as we work with institutions on their adult learner strategies more generally. And what they tell us is that research findings like this are really important for helping them grow their programs internally. Sure, to some break down some of those internal barriers with mm-hmm. data, love it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I also think on the CBE front, I think that colleges are going to be a lot more open to CBE than they probably would have imagined a year ago. Um, (laughs) Why? What's been happening over the past year? (laughs) Well, so many of the CBE models um, now that are, you know, the most advanced are those that are designed to be self-paced, designed to be online exactly what the entire higher education community has been spending this last year trying to get better at so that, you know, our students and faculty could be safe during the pandemic. So I think that given this experience of, you know, trying to offer these kinds of programs through different modalities and um, experimenting with technology in different ways, that I think the interest in CBE programs is only going to increase as we start to muddle through and figure out what the lessons have been from this COVID era. But, you know, right now, in terms of both PLA and CDE, the current offerings are just not nearly enough to meet our current moment. We see them both as really critical levers for helping adult learners engage with post-secondary education and progress more quickly to completion and get there faster, get there cheaper, And that's really what students need and what they will increasingly expect from higher education. Yeah, I agree. And as we move forward, we keep saying, you know, we don't want to go back to normal once the threat of COVID has subsided. We want to create a new normal. And I do think that this past year where pretty much everyone has been forced to push a lot of things online significantly more than they ever would have voluntarily, we're going to see that influence extend into the future of higher education. And I don't think that we can build a better future for higher education without including PLA and CBE as part of that component. And again, I referenced the demographic shift in the United States. Institutions are going to need adult learners. Yep. 
to maintain their enrollments. And so ways that they can engage with adult learners, bring them in and get them through and get them credentialed are going to be critical, possibly for those institutions' lifelines, as there's the dip of high school graduates, et cetera. So that's all amazingly fascinating to me. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, institutions who, and we're starting to see a lot more of this too, that, you know, institutions are really starting to recognize that their demographics are changing. They are going to, and if they, if they aren't already seeing a lot more adults on their campuses, they are wanting to see a lot more adults on their campuses. And to serve them well, it has to go beyond just offering some online classes or offering some weekend courses or something like that. It really exactly. It takes a mind shift across the entire institution, a cultural shift, rethinking just about everything you do to make sure that it's accessible and it makes sense for people who are juggling work and family and learning at the same time. Yeah. You asked earlier about um, what registrars can do. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) So I didn't want to lose um, that train of thought. You know, there, I mean, registrars have um, a really important role to play in both PLA and CBE. Um, I was hoping you'd say that. Yeah. And, you know, and the, the folks who are working on developing CBE programs, they discover very quickly how important the registrar is to the entire design and development of those programs because it takes understanding how the program interfaces with the whole credit hour system at the institution, how it affects record keeping and um, competency mapping and things like that. So the registrar is really critical to the development of those kinds of programs. And the registrar is really important for the PLA process as well. The registrar plays a really important role in sort of tracking what credits are earned through different methods of, you know, alternative credit earning strategies, they'll call them, right? And PLA is just one of the many different kinds of alternative credit earning strategies that an institution might offer. And keeping really good records of how credits are awarded, what methods have been used to award those credits for prior learning, and what areas of study, um, and which students are using PLA and which students are not. That gets to the heart of uh, accessibility and equity and making sure that every student has access to these kinds of alternative strategies and alternative degree completion strategies that an institution would offer. So the registrar and, you know, in partnership with the institutional research department is they sort of work hand in hand here. So when you have a PLA program that you already have in place, you're tapping into the data that the registrar and the IR folks are managing and making that, you know, transparent to your chief academic officer. So they understand the extent to which PLA is even in use at your institution um, could be eye-opening for them to understand how it's being used, how it's not being used. And um, so the registrar and IR folks, they're part of the whole advocacy process of getting PLA more widely adopted within your institution. Right on. And step one for registrars to get involved in that is to increase awareness about PLA and CBE 
amongst registrars themselves. And so I hope that this episode has been able to do that for our listeners. I hope so, so Becky. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your thoughts on PLA and CBE. There's a lot to dig through here. And would you be okay if I put your contact information in the show notes? Or would you prefer a different method if people have follow-up questions? Are there links to the research that you referenced? Is that a subscription service? How do people get additional information? Sure. You're more than welcome to list my contact information, as well as I'll provide links to the research reports that I referenced and also a link to our, our, our kale website generally. So if they're interested in accessing more of the support that kale offers to institutions wanting to do more with PLA or wanting to support adult learners, we can absolutely help with that. Fantastic. Becky, thank you so much. I appreciate your time today. Sure. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thank you to Becky Klein-Collins for taking the time to talk with us today. PLA and CBE are tools we can use to make higher education more accessible, more affordable for our students, and more responsive to and supportive of our community's needs. Check the show notes page for links to the research referenced by Becky and for some additional information on PLA and CBE from ACRO, including the ACRO publication, A Guide to Best Practices, Awarding Transfer and Prior Learning Credit. Thanks very much for listening. As we barrel through this spring semester, I hope that you're remembering to take some time to nourish yourself. Mask up, wash hands, physically distance, drink some more water, and yes, stretch your legs. I'm Doug McKenna, and this is For the Record.